0: Hi, I'm Mary Schmidt, Manager of Development at KFUO. Are the live worship services important to you? Are you blessed by these opportunities to worship God? If so, would you prayerfully consider supporting our ministry? Call me, Mary Schmidt, at 314-996-1518. You can also give online at kfuo.org. Thank you for your continued prayers and support of Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. In 1924, we embraced the new technology of that day, radio. Since that day, we've stayed on the cutting edge of technology. There are many easy ways to listen to Worldwide KFUO, on the air, online, and on demand. We proclaim the gospel of Christ in both word and song. Now, that's why you should listen. The where and the how, well, that's up to you. The messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO. Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePayre, Missouri. Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePayre. We welcome all who are with us today, both in our gymnasium here, also our listeners on KFUO 850 AM here in the St. Louis area, and really worldwide over online with KFUO.org. Today we're, we will uh, do what we always do in this class, or have been doing in this class anyway, and that's to take a look at the scripture lessons assigned for next Sunday. So, for the scripture lessons assigned for January 27, 2019. It is a blustery day here in St. Louis. We're glad everybody's here with us. For those who are here with us uh, in the gymnasium, uh, there are sheets over on the side that contain the readings that we'll be taking a look at today so with that as introduction let's begin with a word of prayer in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen lord god heavenly father we thank you for the greatest gift that you could possibly give to us and that is your own son your precious son jesus christ and for the forgiveness and everlasting life we have through him we pray your holy spirit's blessing upon us as we continue in our study of your word may the holy spirit work through that word not only to increase our faith but also our knowledge and our understanding of your word and your will for us as your children we pray these things in jesus name Amen. all right we will take a look at uh... the lessons for next sunday we have an old testament lesson from nehemiah and um, i'll explain why the uh... The reading is chopped up. If you look at it, it's verses 1 through 3, verses 5 through 6, and verses 8 through 10. Well, the inquiring mind wants to know why don't they want us to read verses 4 and 7? And we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, then we will look at the gospel lesson, Luke chapter 4. And this is Jesus coming back to his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, and he teaches, or we say preaches, I guess, in the synagogue and we'll see what happened as a result of that and then we'll be looking at 1st Corinthians uh, 14 uh, talking about the body of Christ and church as the body I'm sorry 1st Corinthians 12 the church as the body of Christ All right. so let's take a look at the Old Testament lesson first this is from the book of Nehemiah and just a little context here this is after God's people have returned home from their exile in Babylon. You recall that uh, in 586 B.C., uh, that was the final date when Jerusalem and Judea uh, were sacked by Babylon. God raised them up as a means of judgment for His people, and even the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and many of God's people were carted off into captivity some had been even prior to that uh... it's not as though it all happened there for uh, uh... you know 605 for example is when daniel shadrach meshach and abednego were taken off into exile so it's not as though uh... things were peaceful right up until that point but 586 and uh... the whole uh... southern kingdom is is finally uh, felled and then uh, the temple destroyed then uh 539 bc god's people are off uh in in uh babylon 539 bc is when god raises up cyrus and the persians and the persians defeat the babylonians and one year later in 538 uh, cyrus the leader of the persians issues what's called the edict of cyrus which allows god's people to return to their home to return to jerusalem and rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem. Uh, the temple, we think, that, so 538, the temple we believe was completed about 516 BC. And actually, here with Nehemiah and Ezra, sort of a, a pair, they're usually thought of together, uh, we're actually about 100 years now after the Edict of Cyrus. We're around 440 or so, give or take, BC. So God's people have been back for about a hundred years now. At this point, Nehemiah is a lay person who served as the governor uh, of Judea he, uh, of the returned Judea area. He had been a cupbearer for the leader of Persia, who was uh, Artaxerxes at that point. And so we're about a hundred years after. Uh, the big, the big stress in Nehemiah, or one of the big stresses in Nehemiah, uh, was the building of the city walls, and uh, that was something he pushed for and pushed for. And uh, I've decided I'm not going to make any comparisons to modern political situation regarding a wall, but I'll just say that uh, Nehemiah, want a campaign to get the wall, which is a means of protection, of course, for Jerusalem, uh, constructed. Okay. Yeah, I'm staying clear of that controversy. All right, so this kind of context. So we're about 440. God's people have been back for about 100 years now uh, after their exile. And today we're going to look at a special day that God assigned. It was to be the first day of the seventh month. And it was to be a day with no work and a day when God's word was read. And as we'll see, they're doing here. And a day, it was a festival to the Lord, emphasizing God as king. All right. want to read through the whole, uh, there's not, uh, this is very long. Let's read through the whole thing and then go back and talk about it a bit. So starting at verse 1 of Nehemiah 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above all the people and as he opened it all the people stood and ezra blessed the lord the great god and all the people answered amen amen lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshiped the lord with their faces to the ground now i have to apologize here on the sheets you have i omitted verse 8 sorry about that here's what verse 8 says they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the readings. Well, verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go on your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength." All right, so what's going on here is first prescribed by God way back in Leviticus. If you have a Bible with you, Just take a look at Leviticus chapter 23, and I'll show you exactly where this comes from. Leviticus 23, starting with verse 23, just a few verses here, where God establishes this, what is called Feast of the Trumpets. Feast of the Trumpets. So starting with verse 23 of Leviticus 23, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, On the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. All right, so when you look at that, why was it called the Feast of Trumpets? It was to be announced with what? The... Blowing of trumpets, okay, so it's rather—it's not a very difficult thing uh, to figure out why they named it that. It was just one day, first day of the seventh month, and there was to be no work, no ordinary work, as it says there. And they were to present a sacrifice, a food offering to the Lord. And we know from another spot in scriptures that it was to emphasize the fact that God is king. So that's what they're observing in our uh, Old Testament lesson here in Nehemiah chapter 8 they're back now of course in Jerusalem and they are practicing this Feast of Trumpets if you're ever interested in Leviticus 23 you can see here where God just rapid fire uh... initiates or or commands that these festivals be held each and every year the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of First Fruits uh, the Passover, and so on. And he gives them the exact date of the year that they are to be done year after year after year. Now, before we get into the text, let me ask you this question. Why do you think God would say, for example, with the Passover and with first fruits and weeks and trumpets here, why would God prescribe that this be done year after year after year uh, on a calendar every year? There it is. Why would he do that, do you think? Any idea? Why why would God do that? In other words, why not just have the first Passover? It takes place and no need to do this every year. So what? Yes, the idea that they would remember this, and that was a huge thing, that they would remember what God had done for them. That's one of the key things. And for something, for example, like first fruits where you give to God the first portion of what comes out of the field, what would they be remembering every year? That 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 what comes out of the field actually is from God, that God gave them that, you know, and so there was the idea that each year they would both remember, either remember a big event that God had done for them in the past, a salvific act, like the going out of Egypt and being free from their slavery in Egypt, uh, and or some important truth like first fruits that this really comes from the Lord and we want to return the first portion to him as a result now let's go to modern day do we have a similar system today in our in our church in our observance absolutely we call it uh, we're one of a a group of churches uh, denominations that are called liturgical churches and we follow a liturgical calendar every year right And there's a a, a particularly festival half of that calendar. And so we have Reformation on or as near as we can to October 31, usually on a Sunday here, right? And we remember what God had had accomplished in and through Martin Luther, but more importantly, the fact that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, We have an All Saints Day, and again, it's usually... Like a lot of churches, one Sunday is, is Reformation, the next Sunday is All Saints, even though they're only a day apart. Then we have a preparation season for Christmas, and then we have Christmas, don't we, on uh, December 25 every year. Then, and, and we remember, obviously, more than remember, but uh, it's a key thing as well, remember the birth of Christ. January 6th, we have an Epiphany, uh, the coming of the Magi to Christ. Uh, we have an epiphany season after that, which we are in right now. Then we're, before long, going to enter a season of preparation for Easter at, called Lent, of course, where we build up to. And remember on Maundy, Thursday, the, the Christ instituting the, the Lord's Supper and being arrested. On Good Friday, of course, remember uh, his greatest act of love and sacrifice in voluntarily giving his own life. Then on Easter Sunday, the victorious resurrection from the dead. Uh, 40 days after that, we celebrate Ascension. We're one of the few churches in the St. Louis area that has a special dedicated Ascension service on the day of Ascension. Then 10 days after that, we've got Pentecost, remembering how, as Christ promised, he would send the Holy Spirit in a miraculous, extraordinary way. So you see, we are in that same sort of pattern that God established back in the Old Testament. Obviously, we don't, we don't observe the Passover or the Old Testament uh, ceremonial law here, but it's a very similar thing. You've got to wonder, if we weren't in this sort of calendar and in these observances, um, how readily would people be able to call to mind if they weren't reminded every year uh... some of these things i think christmas and easter would probably survive in people's memories but you gotta wonder about some of the other things would they just be kind of falling from the consciousness or not and so this is a very important thing that that uh... we at least to us that we maintain this liturgical calendar we do this every year okay? so i just wanted to point that out that we even see this in the old testament and we see god saying every year do this on this specific day and even giving them instructions for how they are to observe it. okay alright it's probably more time than I should have spent on this but that I wanted to show you that this is what's going on here in in Nehemiah chapter 8 alright so let's go through this text together so they gather together this is again on this day of trumpets they gather together as one so they're they're kinda really together as one big group there in the square or the plaza uh... before the water gate the, the water gate is, is not the uh, Watergate gate that we think of uh... there's a lot of political references today for some reason uh, the water gate is two separate words uh... we think was the eastern wall there was a a uh, pool or a spring i should say of Gishon on the east and we think that's where this was so it was on the eastern side uh... of the city and Ezra notice here ezra is called a scribe here and at the start of verse two he's called a priest and uh, that's not a mistake uh around this time and even before uh we see the rise of what are called scribes who are priests but they not only as scribes would would trans would copy i guess you'd say the text but they also became experts in the law, in the Torah in particular, in the first five books of the Bible uh, written by Moses. They were sort of the experts and uh, many think that Ezra is sort of the first one, is the first one mentioned, certainly a uh, scribe in the history of God's people and so he's called, so Ezra here is called a scribe and they called upon him to bring bring uh, the book of the law of Moses. So again, we think this is the Torah, the first five books, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So we think that's what's in this that he brings. And uh, notice there, uh, and they, now notice here, who was taking the initiative? And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. So who takes the initiative here and tells Ezra what to bring? The people do. Yeah, bring us the book of Moses, okay? And so he brings it, and uh, verse two and Ezra the priest here brought the law, or the Torah, before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. Now, what's that a fancy way of saying? All the, all they who could understand what they heard would mean, probably we think, children who were old enough to be able to understand. Okay, so not so much infants or real young but the children who at least were old enough to understand when they heard it so this is not just men here this is men women and we think again children who were old enough when they heard it read would be able to understand and again on the first day of the seventh month we already talked about that uh, verse three and he is to be Ezra read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday that doesn't sound very Lutheran We've got to get the service over in an hour, don't we? I mean, this is a long time standing around here listening. Uh, I'll let you talk about that. Uh, and uh, notice there, uh, until midday. So, you know, again, we don't know exactly when he started, but let's say he started at, uh, let's say he started at even 9 o'clock. It says early morning, so let's go 7-ish. And midday, you know, if, if it's noon, that's five hours. Wow. All right, and so he is this in the presence of the men and the women who could understand. And notice, there in the ears of the people, were attentive to the book of the law. So they, they were uh, not only there for hours at a time, but they were very attentive. They were listening to what was being read and explained. Verse five. Ezra opened the book. In the sight of the people. We think he was up above them. It says they're probably on some sort of raised platform. He was above all the people. And notice what happens here. As he opened it, all the people stood. Why do you think all the people stood when he opens that book? Yeah, respect because, uh, for what they are going to hear. And what's that a recognition of? That this is what? That they're going to hear? The Word of the Lord, yeah, that this is God's Word. And uh, now, do we do that? Do we have anything similar to that uh, today? When do we usually stand? We stand for, usually, the Gospel. Uh, I don't know if you say we've gotten lazy. We sit, we sit for the Old Testament and the Epistle lesson, usually. Now, in most Lutheran churches, this is the custom. And then we stand for the reading of the Gospel. Now, why do we stand for the reading of the Gospel? many times in the gospels uh, as we read whose voice are we actually hearing it's, it's all the word of god but in particular the voices of Je- the voice of jesus right that we hear jesus speaking we hear jesus teaching and it's simply out of respect and reverence for the fact that we are going to hear something about christ now and so we stand okay and we have a response back and forth right even, even before the pastor will say the gospel according to i should say saint john the second chapter and the people say glory to you o lord right and then this is the gospel of our lord at the end praise to you o christ so we uh again have a similar practice just with the gospel lesson though okay uh, so verse six and ezra blessed the lord the great God and all the people answered, "Amen, Amen." What does the word "Amen" mean? We say it all the time. Let it be so; it shall be so. It's it's a, almost a a, a real uh, oh, fervent statement of faith and belief and trust in whatever has just been said. You know, it shall be so, and so they do this. Amen, Amen after Ezra has blessed the Lord, and they lifted up their hands as they did it. Again, a, a custom of worship, apparently, for them. And now look what happened. They bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And I mentioned that I, uh, verse 7 is omitted here. Verse 7 contains the names of 13 Levites who were there helping to explain the word of God so the word of god was not only being read but it was being explained to the people the, its meaning was being told Okay, anything similar to like that happened today? what do we call that? that explaining the word of god we call it the sermon Yeah, and uh... there is an assumption there that the sermon is based upon whatever you have just read uh... i have unfortunately heard some sermons that read a text and then are talking about something uh, totally different but the idea is that a part of the sermon should be an exposition of whatever the bible reading is that you're talking about and this is what these 13 guys were doing and verse 8 again I'm I'm really sorry I omitted that for the people here Uh, they read the law clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading there is a um, speculation. again this is speculation we don't know this for sure but there is speculation that these thirteen levites were actually explaining it to the people in aramaic because the speculation is that some of the people did no, no longer understood the hebrew that it was written in so you gotta wonder would they read a section and then stop and let these Levites, these thirteen guys, explain it in Aramaic? Possibly so. And that's probably why it took so long. And of course they didn't get through all five books of Moses if they if that especially if that's doing it. But there, again, there is that speculation that uh some of the common people uh did not understand the uh the Hebrew any longer, the original language and the Aramaic the common language at that time, and that maybe these Levites were uh, explaining it or giving it sense. What happened today with immigrant families that come over? Second or third generation? Don't understand the the language anymore, right? First generation speaks it in the home, and second and third generations are out in, you know, through everything from school to the marketplace and so on, and all of a sudden, they don't, they don't understand the original language anymore that their, that their parents, or their, I'm sorry, their grandparents uh, were speaking. So, again, there's speculation that this is a part of what these 13 guys might have been doing, is helping to explain it in the language that the people understood at that day. All right, so the Levites taught the people, um, and they said, This is a day holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now, that's an interesting reaction. What do you think the people were weeping about? Sorrow that, that I'm sorry, what was the that, Yeah, that they did not comply with what they were hearing, right? What do we call this? The preaching of the law in the sense of, a, of the accusatory sense of the law, okay? Now, I've got to say that if you read the Torah, it is not all law. But of course, it does contain the Ten Commandments, and it does contain the, you know a lot of the, a lot of the uh, rules in terms of uh, how God would uh, guidelines would like his people to to act even ceremonial law and other laws and it seems we're implying here again it doesn't say that's why they cried but and wept, but it would seem that the law was doing its accusatory force here with them and you know, it's sort of like this is the standard, and here's where I am, unfortunately. And they're they're repenting, they're they're weeping before the Lord, and that's uh, while that is a natural reaction. Notice that the uh, priests and Levites here turn the people in the opposite direction. That you know, they say uh, they said to them, "Go your way, eat the fat and drink." Now, sweet wine we think that that word sweet can also be translated fine wine and we think that probably is a better translation than sweet wine versus dry wine uh, as the, as uh, and send uh, portions uh, to anyone who has nothing notice therefore this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved so they're saying to them, no don't be grieved this is a day holy to the Lord The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of Yahweh is your strength. And, you know, they they are pointing people not to the law, but to what we today would call the gospel. And that's the good news. between You and God, He has brought you back uh, from your captivity. Uh, You are His people. And it's only when you can have joy in that Lord who has redeemed you that you have strength and so that's why they call it, the joy of the Lord is your strength so it's a rather interesting section the thing it has in common with the gospel lesson is there is preaching that takes place in this case the reading of it and the explanation by these Levites and in the gospel lesson we've got we're gonna see Jesus preaching in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth Okay. So this sets up the Old Testament, and uh, uh, any, any comments here or questions before we move to the Gospel lesson? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, the, the point being made was that we're, we are amazed that the people stood for this long, however many hours it was, and heard this. But it's not like today, where you can, you know, I, I looked at uh, Leviticus 23 on my phone you know and we got access to it like uh, you wouldn't believe not so then this was their opportunity to actually hear the Word of God and you know that's a great point Uh, do we take for granted the Word of God today because it is so accessible and you know all the way up to the Reformation time and the invention of the printing press you had the Word of God being quite scarce and so that's a great point this was an incredible opportunity they felt to actually hear God's word. And that explains also that reverence that when he opened the book, they all stood. You know, this was something incredibly special in their life. And so God is saying, one day of the year, on the first day of the seventh month, this is what you do. And the people uh, we see here were following exactly that. Uh, I don't know, Lois and then Jim. Go ahead, Lois. Yeah, that's a great. Right, right. We don't want to read too much into this, but the question is a great one: that if the Levites were around, why were the people not understanding what was being read, and why weren't they out there uh, teaching on a regular basis? And again, uh, in the end, we have to say we don't know. Some would try to explain it by this language, if it was a language barrier, but then you would think even so should be doing this on a daily basis in the in you know uh for the people and with the people so i gotta say i i just don't know unless there were parts of the torah that they had not been teaching on and and these were the parts that were read and so the people were totally unfamiliar with it and they had they had to explain it but somehow the people were not uh not understanding it now this is a good point i was going to make this point boy going here Uh, Today, is there is there, do you think, a greater need or a lesser need for the pastor to explain the Word of God to people than there was, so let's say, 50 years ago? More or less? Greater. Okay, yeah, most of you are saying greater. Uh, and I, I think I would have to agree that, unfortunately, now uh, there are always exceptions to this, and we have so many exceptions to this in our own congregation, with how well... Uh, educated, how knowledgeable uh, our children are uh, with the Word of God. But I will tell you the stories of being in confirmation class uh, now and uh, asking kids to open up to uh, Luke, for example. And where do they go? Table of contents. See where Gospel Luke is. And even though at the beginning of confirmation we haven't memorized all the all the books. But unfortunately, that, they write them down on a test and how much of that actually sticks. And so there is just a general, I think, greater need, I would agree with you said greater, greater need today to explain things that maybe 50 years ago you could kind of take for granted that people knew. So in a sermon, you, you didn't need maybe 50 years ago to explain as much as we do today and I'll tell you we we uh, try to stay cognizant of that we try not to assume that everybody out there before us on a Sunday morning uh, knows all this stuff so we try not to make passing references to things that might leave some people at least in the dust and make them feel like well I guess I don't belong here because I don't I don't understand this at all and so what they were doing back then is again it's a good thing for us to see that for some reason a lot of the people did not know or did not understand what was being read. Okay? You want to follow up? Hmm. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. So the comment was about uh, Scandinavian countries or I think it would extend to other European countries as well that uh, even the scriptures themselves have been lost and people come to maybe a Christmas service because they like the music. It's almost like going to a concert, you know, in an opera or uh, uh, something like that. And uh, yeah, it, it is really a lost, lost thing. Okay, Jim, you've been waiting patiently. Oh, she asked this question. You did. Okay. That's that a great question. All right, any other comments or questions then before we move on to the gospel lesson? All right, let's move on then, and we'll come back, I hope, and get uh 1 Corinthians 12. It is somewhat related here, so let's go to Luke chapter 4. And you know, this is the uh, early on in Jesus' ministry, and he comes back to his hometown. Now, what would, you, what would you expect the reaction might be in his hometown when he comes back? Here's the, here's the, here's the hometown boy coming back uh... you know uh... let's give him a warm welcome and uh... this is just great well we'll see uh... yeah it starts off great but uh, by the end of this lesson they want to throw him off a cliff and so uh... Not, not what you might expect when he comes back home i just gotta throw in one story here there was a uh, I, I won't identify it was a pastor who uh... said that uh, he, he went back to his home congregation there's always a lot of pressure when you go back to your home congregation and preach the first time you know when you're a seminary student or something along those lines and you're nervous because all the people know you and they remember you and all that so he gets up there, he preaches a sermon and he's all done and he's in the line greeting people and it was just like a first or second grade teacher came through he went to Lutheran school and she was uh, his teacher he sh- she shakes his hand and says, I guess God still does work miracles <laughs> so, and he had to admit that as a young boy he maybe wasn't the best behaved and, uh, but I thought, boy, that's a, quite a reaction uh, to my sermon. Now, so anyway, let's take a look at the lesson here. Uh, and uh, he, this would be Jesus, we're starting verse 16 of Luke 4. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the day, on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Let me just stop here for a second. The, these synagogues, after the after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, uh, you know, and, and it started it seems to pop up. And even with the temple in Jerusalem, they are there are synagogues all over throughout uh, the promised land, and wherever there are are significant populations of uh, Jews, they seem to pop up. They are obviously not, the, not a temple, they are a synagogue, they're a house of prayer. And on the Sabbath day, there would usually be some sort of instruction like this that would take place. They did not have pastors, as we would think of pastors today, like we do here at St. Paul's. They instead had a gentleman, usually a, a one, who was named the ruler of the synagogue. And it would be his, his responsibility... To make sure that these readings of God's Word and some sort of instruction and some sort of prayer would take place and on the Sabbath day okay so that was the ruler of the synagogue and you see sometimes Jesus will run into a ruler of the synagogue or you'll hear Paul uh, in Acts same type of thing this is the guy and so Jesus goes to the synagogue as was his habit on the Sabbath day And this would be the custom they would stand up to read they would sit down to teach okay so uh, you may think this is it is i guess rather strange compared to our custom today we have the pastor stand in the pulpit right so people can see and hear Uh, remember when jesus is doing the the sermon on the mount he, he goes out into the boat a little bit and does what sits down so this was the custom that the rabbis would sit down to teach so verse 17 and the scroll of the prophet isaiah was given to him notice he did not pick which scroll it seems Uh, we don't have any record of him saying i want this the the uh scroll for isaiah it's also a good point a place to point out that the people didn't have a collected book here yet uh it's going to be about a Well, roughly 100 years or so before the people have what's later, uh, what would be called a codex, C-O-D-E-X, which would be more of a book-type structure. At this point, they're still on scrolls, okay? So they're unrolling here. You would get a scroll of the prophet Isaiah and unroll it. Now, here's where Jesus starts making some choices. He, Jesus, unrolled the scroll, and found the place where it was written so see he, he takes the scroll but he's being he's directing the show now or he's directing what's happening he goes to this particular spot in the scroll okay? and if you're interested this is isaiah sixty-one verses one and two to start with here and then he's gonna pull a little uh... switch and go to isaiah fifty-eight but he can do that that's all right so verse eighteen he reads the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery, covering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is almost universally understood from Isaiah 61 to start with as a messianic psalm referring to what the messiah will do and notice who is it who is speaking here it is not the lord it is the messiah who is actually speaking it is the servant of the lord who is actually speaking so he starts off with the spirit of the lord is upon me because he this spirit of the lord has anointed me well let me ask you this where was jesus anointed publicly with the spirit at his baptism right we just had that weeks ago uh, in the Jordan River so he is anointed that's what Christ means the anointed one he is anointed with the Spirit so in spirit comes down in the form of the dove and the voice of the father we we heard that a couple weeks ago Uh, to proclaim why why is he anointed why does this happen so that to proclaim good news to the poor uh, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and that's where he stops with 61 1 and 2 there's kind of a double thing going on here uh both a physical thing and a spiritual thing first of all the physical thing did jesus during his time to come after this did he restore sight to the blind hearing to the deaf mobility to the lame and all the things that are spoken of not only here but in other places in isaiah yes in fact remember when john the baptist sends his disciples to ask jesus are you the one who is to come or should we expect another instead of just saying yes i'm the one jesus says go back and tell john what you see right the blind, I'm not quoting this exactly, the blind see the deaf hear, the lame walk, and all. So he's saying, I'm fulfilling, I'm doing what the Messiah was predicted to do. In other words, yes, I am the one. Okay? But here, so there's a physical thing that's going on, but there's also a spiritual interpretation of this or understanding of this as well. Who are the people who are blind spiritually? unbelievers and really by nature all of us right and those who can't hear and those who are captive what are what are we by nature captive to sin and death right and so there's kind of a two-level thing going on here with this messiah who would come this messiah would come and visibly physically in front of all people demonstrate that god is now intervening in human history to undo the things that were done by the fall and by sin and it's happening right in front of your eyes and it's just the beginning and leading to pointing ahead to a day when all of it is going to be undone but it's happening case by case by case now as Jesus encounters people who are blind, deaf, lame and so on okay? and again it's going to point ahead to the day when he comes back And there is the great physical bodily resurrection of all and then all of those physical things that were the result of sin in this world are done away with but it's beginning right now okay with Jesus all right now we go up to set liberty to those who are oppressed that's actually from Isaiah 58 verse 6 and we don't know if Jesus just kind of flipped back to that or just by memory said it Uh, I've always said he can do whatever he wants. We're not going to be critical of this at all, Uh, but it fits right in with what he is saying. Okay, so it's a natural thing for him to do. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There was in the Old Testament a custom, uh, although we don't have any record of them actually doing it, but they were supposed to, called a year of Jubilee, when all debts were canceled, all slaves were set free, uh, land was returned to its original owner this was to happen on the 49th year and seven sevens in the Old Testament and uh, so this is the he's proclaiming here the great year of the Lord's favor in other words debts all debts uh, uh, more speaking probably about debts to God here uh, namely sin and all captives all those who are captive are going to be set free Okay. So here's what he's here to proclaim, all right? He's going to much uh, more than proclaim it. All right, so we've got to get down to the drama here. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, this is so he can teach. Again, they're sitting down. And look look at how uh, the you can almost feel the tension here, can't you? And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So this is just like when the... When the young seminarian comes back home and he stands in the pulpit, everybody's looking at him right at that point, right? So what's he going to say? And he says, he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, a couple things here. Notice how specific Jesus is here. Not any day, but today, this day. In the original language, it's very... um, uh, specific and pointed. This day, this scripture. So he's leaving no doubt about any ambiguity here. Notice there, has been fulfilled. It has already been fulfilled. And notice that's a passive uh, verb there that God is the one doing this, not them. So this has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what's he, what's he saying about Isaiah 61? What we just read. He's the one. That's me. Yep. This has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, verse 22, things are kind of going all right still. And all spoke well of him. It's like after the, after the seminary and preaches, oh, wasn't that a great sermon that he delivered here? uh... and marveled at his great at the gracious words that were coming from his uh, from his mouth Uh, and they said now why would they say this is not this joseph's son why do you think they're saying that this is the guy we saw growing up in the carpenter shop huh? and they're kind of getting what he's implying here by this that he's the anointed one of god isn't this joseph's son No. and now notice here things are going to change dramatically here and quite frankly jesus is the one that kind of drives it in that direction verse 23 and he jesus said to them doubtless you will quote to me this proverb position heal yourself now oh, boy there's a lot been written on this and i'll just tell you a couple things here uh there's a lot we could read on this Heal yourself was sort of an idiom or an expression. Yourself meaning all those sort of connected with you. In other words, do what. What they're saying here is, Jesus was in Capernaum before this. If you read the first five chapters of Mark, we got to put that together. Then he comes and preaches here in this synagogue. He healed a lot of people, cast out a lot of demons. That's where the guy uh, they were. The guy was paralytic was lowered through the roof. Remember, he heals him that's where the, the woman uh, with the issue of blood touches the hem of his garment and is healed so and, and they, people have heard about this in Nazareth okay so physician heal yourself or can't you do for your own what you did out there why haven't you now here's the speculation and again this is speculation I want to be clear about this, this is speculation um, some have said, and it, it appears that at the cross, who's not around any longer at the cross by the time Jesus is hanging on the cross? Joseph, yeah. And there is speculation that even here at this point, uh, Joseph is dead. And so what's, what's their kind of accusation almost? If you're out there raise, uh, healing all these people and bringing them health, position heal yourself. You know, why didn't you do it for your own father? And so there's a, so, and Jesus heads this off, saying, doubtless you will quote to me, physician heal yourself. Okay? So again, that, I want to, again, I want to say that's speculation. We don't know, but it would be a good explanation for, for that quote from Jesus there. Okay? Um, what we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well in other words again all those miracles we heard you doing in Capernaum uh, Peter's mother-in-law was another one uh healed right out where do it here in other words we want we want to see some of this ourselves and verse 24 and he said truly i say to you no prophet is acceptable in his hometown that's a that has gotten to be used as a saying a lot hasn't it no uh no prophet has honor in his own town or you know that sort of thing this is where it comes from um, but I, uh, verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, now here's where Jesus is going to point out two examples in the Old Testament, one with Elijah and one with Elisha, where prophets, namely Elijah and Elisha, were sent to Gentiles. So watch this one. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. So there were a lot of widows in Israel when the heavens were shut up for 3 years you can read about that in 1 kings 17 3 years and 6 months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon read not in Israel to a woman who was a widow read there a gentile widow so how are the how is the, how is here is going to take that not so well what he's implying is uh god chose the gentiles uh this gentile widow over all the other widows in israel at that time that's not going to be too good for them and uh verse 27 and there were many lepers in israel in the time of the prophet elisha and none of them was cleansed but only naaman the syrian now that's in second kings 5 1 to 14. remember there's that whole conversation about washing and so on in the river uh, now, when they heard these things, so again, same uh, Syrian. notice he's a Syrian here. He's a non-Israelite, another Gentile. So, verse twenty-eight. When they, this would be the hearers, there, the people, heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill, or we could say the pinnacle or the, the cliff of the hill, on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff, but passing through their midst he went away this was a uh, just a miraculous again passing through their midst he goes away why would he why would he do that why would he not just passively let them throw him off the cliff not not his time yet you know, things are very much in Jesus' control. Same thing when he feeds the 5,000 men, and who knows how many women and children with five loaves of bread and two fish. The people come, and what do they want to do? Make him their king. And again, he passes through the midst of them. And, you know, when you stop and think about this, think about Monday, Thursday, when the temple guard is coming to arrest Jesus. Could he have passed right through the midst of them as well? Sure. But he did not it was his time at that point right and again that's always impressed me uh some of you have in this room uh stood on the mount of olives and looked out how close jerusalem is and at night certainly could have seen the torches coming could have escaped uh, to go over the top of the mount of olives you're in the you're in the wilderness had plenty of time to do that uh, but he did not nor did he choose to walk through the midst of them nor as he tells Peter would he would he call upon legions of angels to come to his defense he voluntarily and willingly allows himself to be arrested and taken away because now it is his time okay? what this uh, text does is points to a general pattern that is going to take place and we'll see it in the three years of Jesus ministry leading to the ultimate rejection, not only by people in his hometown, but by uh, the chief priests, scribes, elders, and many others as well. This is kind of setting the stage. All Jesus does is tell them who he is. He is the anointed one of God, and that's the reaction. And we're going to see that throughout the gospel uh, culminating in the cross and uh, very happily culminating in an empty tomb after that. Okay? Okay. All right, let me stop here. we got just a few minutes for the Epistle lesson. Any uh, comments or questions on the Gospel reading for next Sunday? It was kind of an unexpected homecoming that, uh, that he has, at least the result of it is, is kind of unexpected. Jim? How, how, how about that Jesus was allowed to preach in the not... Oh, okay. Okay, that's a great question. How is it that Jesus was allowed to, to do this, to uh, preach or teach in the temple? This was kind of the regular custom that they would have a uh not only the reading of scripture but a uh, uh rabbi or someone who was recognized to be knowledgeable in the scriptures give an exposition of, of the scriptures. And so the speculation is here that the ruler of the synagogue heard that Jesus was in town and arranged for Jesus to be the one to teach. But this was the regular custom. Uh, in the synagogue, they would have and it could be more than one uh, sit down and actually expound on the, on whatever was was read for the people yeah so it 's nothing unusual in that sense, but in the other sense, this was a day like they had never seen before in that synagogue when someone would come in and say, "I am in, in effect, I am the one who's spoken about in isaiah sixty one i mean just can imagine what the reaction must have been especially all the hometown folks who remember him uh, growing up and remember joseph who was or wasn't still around we don't know all right yes yes yeah this is uh, yes the question was is this any, any what's similar to the idea of Jesus instructing the disciples to shake? you know if, if someone does not receive you Shake the dust off your feet and, and in effect, move on. Yes. And it, it's the same sort of thing here. There is this rejection. And notice Jesus doesn't stick around and debate any further with them. From everything we know, he's, he's off from here. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's a very good comparison. Okay, any others? All right, we've got uh, very little time. Let's just go to uh, 1 Corinthians 12. And Corinth is a very divided congregation uh they are divided in a sense that remember paul says earlier in the book uh some follow paul some follow Apollos, paulus uh some follow christ so they're divided in terms of one's following one pastor and one's another and one's another uh they're divided in how they um, observe the lord's supper between the haves and the have-nots uh won't go into great detail there but many of the haves uh, would be gorging themselves with food and, and even inebriated We believe and the have-nots, just the opposite. Uh, And they were also very divided when it came to spiritual gifts and how those were being manifested in the congregation at Corinth. Uh, Some feeling that they were superior to others because they had certain spiritual gifts. And so Paul in this section is going against that kind of thinking and wants to point out to them that they are all one body in Christ and that there is no superior or inferior that all parts of the body are needed now this was not unique back in that time the politicians used this same kind of rhetoric talking about a, a body a body politic but the, the politicians who were the, the powerful used it in just the opposite way they used it to emphasize the fact that they were the head and you were just a toe and they they used it to try and and keep and manifest their power so you have no right to speak up because i'm the head i'm the most important Paul's the exact opposite way here you can't say you're superior and you can't say you're inferior because of what part of the body that you are um, let me just give you the brief uh, outline here, and then, because uh, we are about at the end of our time, uh, if you look, uh, for example, at uh, the first let me get back to this, sorry, the first two verses uh, there, twelve and thirteen. Paul is just emphasizing we are baptized into one body, okay, and so again, there he wants to stress unity to this congregation that is splintered and has has a lot of disunity. If you look at verses 14 through uh, 20, those are addressed to the people who are feeling like they are inferior. Okay? So like verse 14, But the body does not consist of one member but many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body so see these verses fourteen through twenty are being addressed to those people who are feeling inferior with respect to the gifts that they have and apparently there were some people who were feeling that and the big thing is look at verse eighteen but as it is god arranged the members in the body each one of them as he chooses so Paul's point is here, don't be talking about inferiority or superiority, God is the one who arranged all this. If you're somehow not happy with this, who are you not happy with? God. He's the one who arranged it, right? All right, then uh, verses 21 through 26 are addressed to those who feel superior, you know, my gifts are better than yours. So look like at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Okay? So all those verses are directed in that direction. Okay? And uh, again, it finally finishes out in verses 27 through 31, again, talking about the oneness that we all are and how God has given apostles, prophets, teachers, and then five gifts that he rattles off in a row, okay? It's God who has done this. So it's God's arrangement, and we don't argue or say I'm superior or I'm inferior, okay? That's the uh, Reader's Digest version of the Epistle lesson for next Sunday. we got to close. Let's close then. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.